Good afternoon, everyone. We're moving on to our penultimate presentation of the day now. Um, we're going to be looking at how data protection and privacy have climbed up the corporate agenda in recent years and are now starting to constitute a, a key area of corporate governance and compliance in many sectors. Um, we're also going to be looking at how uh, some of the recent developments in, in the data protection area are focusing on um, some international aspects and HR aspects, amongst other things. Um, Co-presenting with me is my fellow partner, Callum Murray, um, who heads up the commercial technology team in Kemp Little, um, and who has, I believe, written the data protection chapter in the PLC cross-border handbook uh, for the UK over recent years. And we're also joined by uh, John Manning, who heads up the operational risk function at Prudential. Um, John's role includes operational risk planning, operational capital assessment, business continuity, information security, and privacy. Um, and despite that very busy workload, he, he's managed to be here to, with us today, today um, and I'm delighted to hand over to him and invite him to the lectern. <laughs> you paid, so it's fine. <laughs> And today I just was asked really to give you a, a high-level overview of Prudential and it will hopefully give you a, a scope of some of the issues and scale of, of some of the players in the industry. Uh, a little bit of what I do and obviously it's going to be quite short because the list of the introduction was quite long. And then we're going to look at some risk and data, some data threats and a little bit of thought around controls. I hope to spark questions rather than answers because there is not too many concise answers in some of these and common sense comes through and hopefully if you start thinking you'll get some common sense so let's see where we go um, Prudential I think most of you have heard of us we've been around for 160 odd years um, started just over there a little bit um, and uh, started off in our first big deal was actually going to a, a machine organisation in the 1840s and we sold coverage for the average employee to buy their coffin effectively. So our first bit of insurance was to cover the whole workplace so all the employees could get their funeral costs. Um, we moved on and grew over the time. We moved into different markets. Um, as you can see, at one stage we had uh, businesses in Australia uh, New Zealand, Argentina, um, Africa and Malaysia. Uh, most of those businesses have changed form. Um, I myself, I'm, you probably don't hear it, my accent, I'm a Kiwi and I, I did have a pre-policy when I was about um, five. So those policies were, are around the world. Um, we've always tried to engage other markets and we've changed our form on how we do that. Uh, but one of the one of the big things which people associate us with is the man for the Prue. And that formed in around sort of the 1950s, which was probably when Prudential in the UK was in its biggest footprint. And we had something like 25 million customers. Uh, today we're down to about 7 million UK customers. So we've changed our focus, but you can see that small policy with lots of data uh, is always been a challenge for us. So today, our international company has four main business units. There's a few others that float around. There's Prudential UK, who I work for. 
uh, M&G Investments. Um, if you can't read, read the uh, subtext, we've got Prudential Corporation Asia and Jackson National Life. Um, each of the business units run fairly uh, holistically by themselves, although we do share some common infrastructure. So all of our, our data centers are hosted by a centralized internal company, which actually is in the US. Some interesting facts to, to give you some scale and scope of Prudential. Uh, last year, we responded to 1.9 million phone calls, and we had 5 million odd customer requests. Um, we have some great feedback about our brand and our trustworthiness. Uh, we've got some good feedback on one of our core assets, our, our ability in, to invest money. We actually ship that off through M&G to do a lot of that work. Um, scale of just one of our elements of business, our With Profits Fund, um, has just around 70 billion pounds of money invested across various elements. Um, an interesting one is one in five annuities uh, paid by us. If you translate that, that means that as people retire, the biggest payroll that we have probably in Europe is, is what we run through with roughly a million people being paid a month by us. Um, it's estimated that our business model at the moment has split out roughly 70% of our work to, to third parties. Uh, almost three years ago, we did one of the bigger outsourcing deals in the country. We outsourced a lot of our processing to Capita. That included um, giving them two offices in Mumbai, which we used to make, run the UK business. Um, another interesting fact is one in four deaths are notified to us. I mean, that actually leads on to one of our second unique selling points, is we've got a whole bunch of actuaries who can sadly work out where they think, when you think your death is likely to come around. So, um, so much so that one product line which we haven't pushed too hard but we have proposed is postcode annuities. So depending on your postcode, it depends when you die, it depends how expensive or cheap your, uh, your policy is. Um, any guesses of uh, what the policy rates might be in Glasgow? Because that is actually... Uh, That's cheap. Cheap? So I live in Scotland, so I'm, I'm allowed to pick on the uh, Glaswegians. <laughs> Mars bars and, uh, and deep frying seem to be a good thing for health. Um, to operate the UK business, we, we're diversified across many locations, and I dipped into it before. We have an Indian presence. We have the US presence with our data center. We obviously have a, a Scottish presence. Um, we have a, a large office in Stirling. Reading and indeed London. Um, we also have smaller business units in Ireland and indeed South Africa. Uh, it was interesting to see the Zurich fine earlier. We have a joint venture in South Africa and we've made sure that we're not in the same position, but we could easily be. Uh, there, there has to be a line and the level of assurance and you have to be comfortable with that and you, you have to manage your regulator well. Um, my role, uh, you've got a, a fairly long list to, to start with. 
Um, it's about putting the framework in and making sure that the discussions are made in business. And it's always a challenge because some people are driven by cost. In fact, lots of accountants are driven by cost. But actually, it's trying to flesh out the broader risk-based elements. Um, let's get on to the, the more interesting stuff. Our, our aim, both in contracting and outsourcing, is to provide protection to our data. Uh, one of the strange things about data is you need to move it to make value from it. So in the, in the old-fashioned world, you would use one of these things here to lock up your data, and you wouldn't ever let it move outside your boundaries and you'd have no risk. So let's translate that to the real world. You're sitting at home, you pick up your post, what's come through the door, your bank statement, you've had a data exchange with your bank. The data that's on your bank statement includes your name, your policy number, your recent transactions. It doesn't include your date of birth, but um, you can find that fairly easily. Not funny enough, it adds your address as well. How many points of identification do you need to validate with the bank that you are their account holder? Interesting question, isn't it? Shows, shows the complexity of the data game. So back to risk and why uh, I hope I was invited along. Um, risk is, is an interesting thing because you've got to move around with that. So it's the probability of, of something going wrong. Um, we've done some seed mailings. We have a fairly good idea that there is things that go wrong with uh, both Royal Mail and UK Mail. There is a delay rate. We haven't had too many failures. Um, and then you have the impact. So when you're sending something out, what is the impact of what, what you lose? There was some data I carefully said, we can find your date of birth, but it's not in your bank statement. Minimizing the amount of data is one of the key ways that we need to move as businesses to protect it. So those sort of minimizations is the controls. Um, moving away from post could be a great control. Um, given that the average age of a prudential customer is somewhere over 60, there could be a barrier to that, and we have to balance that. Actually, the, uh, the gray surfer is actually a friend to us and is, is keenly adopted, but there will be some stumbling blocks. The other thing to remember is data risk is not black and white. There is no absolute. There is no protection from somebody who you've subcontracted your data processing to not doing a good job, whether that's one of your employees or whether that's a subcontractor or a subcontractor or a subcontractor. There will always be risk. And the idea is to establish a culture either through commercial agreement, good contract management, where you manage those issues rather than they come up as surprises. I think that's what the regulator and by regulator, I, I actually refer to the FSA more than the Information Commissioner. Um, I think you guys are loosely aware that the Information Commissioner <coughs> picked up his strong teeth this year of £500,000 maximum fines. Um, if you look back to Nationwide, which was three years ago, there was an information issue that went to the FSA, which was already over a million pounds. Um, I think one of the interesting things is to look at the cost of an incident to us. So 
if we get it wrong, what cost would it come through? I mentioned before that we had a million people being paid by us. If that transaction went wrong, we would look at um, rounding up slightly because we can get a discount, credit check of £20 each. We would probably not get the £3 million fine. Um, given the spate of fines that the FSA has pushed out this year, um, I think five to six million would be appropriate. Uh, the FSA has one of their great sections in their controls called Section 166, which they can force a top four company to come on to financial services organization and evaluate the controls and rectify it at, at the financial services organization's cost. Um, that's Ernest & Young, £4 million. So you're looking at a 30 to £40 million event for a fairly big loss. But what's the threat? This is where I'm going to be controversial because I want to plant thoughts and, and don't quote me outside this room. How many people, as you talk, has been involved in identity theft? There's several. What is the cost of that theft now? Given that we're talking 20 pounds per person or a 30 million pound event, and compare that with HMRC's loss of um, the child protection funds, where there was a letter sent out to most households in the, uh, most family households in the company, country. There wasn't a huge impact from that loss. Indeed, um, data can be lost lots of ways, and one of the ways is through malicious activity and hacking. Uh, that's where the data in your database ends up in somebody else's database. It's, it's not the, the wonderful world of changing the White House's page to say uh, you've been hacked. It's now a commercial entity. That database of cloned information, whether it be credit card information, has a price on it. The price per complete record to forge somebody's cards is now down to a pound. So it's going to take time to harmonize and level out the cost of hit versus the cost of regulation. Um, I mentioned hacking. There's other ways that your information can lose leave the organization in an uncontrolled form. Uh, data leakage is the biggest risk that we've got, whether that is by the traditional briefcase on the train, whether that is through some accidental act of an employee, or something more malicious, uh, whether that is somebody deliberately having access to information and using it in the wrong way. We all come back to the same controls that we should have, good oversight over our employees and activities, we should have reasonable level of controls, and we should have a good way of cleaning up afterwards, because it is going to happen. Um, Back to those controls, I think one of the key things that we need to map into as an organization is we have to go back to common sense. It's, it's evening out that 
if we're getting to a stage where we're looking at contractual clauses, and I hope that the ones that I agree to are, are strong, we've actually gone too far. Because when you've got a, a third party, it is far cheaper to manage it without you guys in the room. Um, litigation costs, litigation hurts, litigation is always a compromise. So try and get good basic common sense going, dialogue and controls. Um, look at the controls and work out what's appropriate. Uh, there will be lots of technical people giving lots of acronyms, lots of jargon and each one of those each one of those elements of jargon has a lifespan. So once upon a time, encryption was great. Now we're talking about 256-bit encryption. Um, that means that the supercomputer takes 10 minutes to work out the answer. Somebody will go for 512 as a standard. It'll each get ratcheted up. In fact, it comes back to one of what I call the uh, Johannesburg syndromes. I'm lucky enough to go to uh, South Africa a few times, and you've all seen or heard of Johannesburg not being the, the nicest city in the world. As you go through some of the suburbs, particularly where they've got a slightly better class of living than the townships, you can see that they've gone through an evolution. So house one had gates. House two had a fence that was six foot high. House one said, he's got a fence that's six foot high, so I've got to make mine 12. So you get to a situation in Johannesburg where you've got bars in the windows, alarms, arm guards, 20-foot walls, and proximity sensors. It is always going to be a game where you have to be slightly higher than the, the threat. Because if you've got the lower fence, you're the target. Likewise, when you're contracting, <coughs> if you fix the, the level of the fence, your protection will be underweight at some time in the future. So you have to do something really fuzzy and, and not very concise to make sure that you have the controls so you can work as a team with your outsourcer to make sure that you can ramp up the controls as the life of the contract goes through. So comes back to the best control is those two parties working as a team to make sure that there is effective examples. Um, some of the examples that get tricky, and hopefully this leads on nicely to the other ones, is when you're using customer data in testing. Um, if I asked you, as a general audience, would you like your data used in testing? Your first answer is probably no. If you were asked the question of, would you like your data used to ensure that the company's product serviced your needs perfectly, and that they would put in adequate controls to ensure the risk of loss was as the same as every day, you'd probably say yes. So you look at the risks of those two elements. The, the regulation says <laughs> that you should not use data unless there's a business perfect, uh, purpose, which is the, the DP Act. You need to define the business purpose. If you want to put a number on it, using live test data is probably a risk score of two. Not using it, your product and services are likely to fail, your risk score is eight. The other thing that, that was interesting, and I'm, I'm sorry, the chat from Microsoft, I didn't have a chance to, to jump in, is 
under the, the DP laws and the, the EU model clauses for data, it's going to get woolier and woolier how you service and contract where your data resides and how it processes, particularly notifying your customers that their data may be processed overseas. It's interesting you've got the model of people using Citrix from a non-EU com country coming into the, the UK. Are they processing data in the UK or are they processing offshore? Hasn't ever gone to case law. Hope it never does. Um, good old common sense says you need to go out and break down the, the requirements so you have a, a, a level playing field. Right. Um, I'm going to hand back. But uh, as I do so, um, hopefully you can see a bit of a theme here. Um, this is our, our starting point, which is prudence. It's, uh, it's changed life as it's come through. So prudence saves us or you from the wolves. So hopefully we can use a bit of common sense and prudence to get to the right place. Thanks, John. It's uh, always useful to hear a little bit of practice around the, the law that we sit staring at for hours and hours in our darkened rooms and hearing some of the challenges that are faced when you, when you use it on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, being invited along to speak to any session about recent developments uh, leaves you hoping that there have been some. Data protection is an area where that's never really an issue, and that's particularly so at the moment, I think. In the background to all of uh, our discussions today, we have a, a huge review going on of the Data Protection Directive, and that's trundling on, and we'll reach where it gets to. But this year, we've seen some, some fundamental changes, I think, in um, data protection. Uh, John's already mentioned the, the Information Commissioner's uh, milk teeth, perhaps, uh, and I think we will be seeing more fining coming. Uh, we've had a couple of fines already since the, the fines have gone live in May. Um, I also think that we will be seeing uh, more changes like the uh, requirements that have come in through the telecoms directive for telecoms companies to notify of um, data breaches and data security breaches. This week we've had uh, Peter Hustings, the European Data Protection Supervisor, asking that that be widened to all companies uh, and at the same time coming up with a, an interesting idea of uh, introducing for people uh, a right to be forgotten. Uh, which perhaps would be quite useful if you're a football commentator from Sky at the moment. Um, we'll come back to the concept of, of, of the right to be forgotten. Two changes that I want to focus on today in the past 12 months, um, one very much in the business context uh, and one perhaps more in the business consumer context, but will have an effect on all of you who, who have uh, online or internet operations. Um, on the first of these, uh, as John's mentioned, um, Contractual clauses have been around for a while, uh, giving comfort to those who are exporting data from the EEA, uh, but this year we've seen some change in those clauses, and I think it was worthwhile having a quick look at those changes. The need for the clauses, uh, as everyone will no doubt be aware, or hopefully is aware, um, comes from the, the directive where uh, any data controller shifting data outside the EEA is uh, required to provide uh, an adequate level of protection for that data. Now that trips through into the Data Protection Act uh, and in turn sort of sits alongside the obligations of the data controller generally to ensure that any data they hold is, is properly looked after. How? 
How do you do that? How do you establish adequacy as a data controller? Well, if you're really bold, you can do it yourself. Um, this requires some kind of analysis or assessment of uh, the general adequacy criteria, so the kind of data you're using, where you're shipping it, what you're shipping it for, uh, the countries that it's going to, and then if you really want to go for it, and the laws of those countries and whether or not they provide sufficient protection for that data. I think you're a pretty bold organization if you're taking that approach. Um, so people tend to fall back on either some of the uh, certainties of adequacy or the contractual um, provisions. Now, the certainties are, are sort of falling into two pots. Firstly, the Commission's already told us that uh, exports within the EA is fine, so you've got 29 places to ship to without any concern. Uh, also, there are a string of other countries that you can ship to where the law there has felt to be sufficiently adequate, so move your information on. Um, I'll give you the countries very quickly because uh, they're Argentina, Canada, Guernsey, Jersey, Switzerland, <coughs> Isle of Man, and the Faroe Islands. And the only thing I can think is you have to be in the cattle industry to, to find that that's going to be of general use to your business. So if you're not in the cattle industry, you can also rely on, on exemptions. Um, if you have consent, you can move the information whatever you like, uh, as long as you've got the consent that's informed. Um, if it's necessary for contracting, you can move it as well. Um, and for that, you've got to be thinking along the lines of if you're booking a hotel in um, the States, you can ship the information to the hotelier in the States because it's necessary for what the consumers asked you to do. Um, other than that, you're really falling back into public interest grounds, which are hopefully not things that come about as a daily part of your business. So if you're not looking for that kind of protection, but you do want adequacy uh, in shipping personal information around, fortunately, again, the directive provides a, a, an answer through contractual clauses. And again, two pots here, either binding corporate rules, which is, if you like, uh, the rules of the gang, a bit of a collective decision on how you're going to behave. Uh, everybody in your corporate structure can agree to behave in a certain way, and that will allow information to be shared in your corporate structure. It's probably indicative of, uh, I think, both the cost and effort that that requires to, to note that there's only been seven approved throughout Europe in five years since we've had the opportunity to do this. Uh, tends to be the bigger multinationals that have had a look at it, and even then, only for certain purposes and certain data sets. So then we fall back to the, the model contract clauses um, that, that John mentioned. And this is where we've seen the change this year. And it's a change that I think has been driven by some of the concerns and risk points that John's already pointed out. Um, really, the, the, the key focus of the new sub, uh, sorry, of the new uh, model clauses that we have this year is around the concept of sub-processing. Now, you should note that this is a transfer from data controllers to data processors. So this is where you're telling somebody else what to do and giving them the information, and again, obviously, outside of Europe. Now, through the new model clauses, um, there's a requirement on whoever you are instructing to then have a subcontract with anybody uh, that they are getting into to be part of that processing. And if you come back to John's testing example, um, this is where I think there's a real pertinence. In that kind of situation, many of the IT suppliers that you're working with as a big organization will have the capability to give you uh, the systems that you want. I'd question whether they all have the ability to do the testing properly and how much of that's being farmed out to somebody else. Question how much of that you know. Now, using these model clauses, there's an obligation on your data importer, your, your sub-processor, uh, sorry, your processor, to have a contract with the sub-processor. And I've listed some of the criteria there that should be in that agreement. 
there's nothing particularly new or exciting there other than the sense of the reach down to the sub-processor. Um, but what I think is important here is to remember that as a data controller, this is all your obligation. You're the one who's on the hook if you don't do this when you know they're sub-processing. So it's for you to be carrying out the kind of due diligence piece here to make sure this is happening. The new model clauses bring a variety of obligations for all the parties to them. Um, interesting points here, I think, are the, the stronger rights of the data subject generally. Uh, the data subject now has an opportunity to make requests of two or three people in the chain and also those two or three people in the chain to have liabilities back to the data subject. Uh, when people sort of say, yeah, great, but you know, who's using them or, or are they in play? Uh, yet very much so. I mean, we've had them now for sort of seven, eight months. Um, you don't need to be changing what you're using at the moment, but it's important, I think, that if you are changing what you're doing, that you do change to these new model clauses, particularly where you know that this sub-processing exists. Again, it's back to John's world of trying to manage risk and uh, put four walls around the parties that you're dealing with and being able to answer to your customers um, where you're putting the data and who's touching it. So we're moving from kind of the, the world of corporate, if you like, or B2B to a little bit more B2C and thinking about the users themselves and, and perhaps coming back to the, uh, the newly termed keys and gray right to be forgotten. Um, the second area where there's been a huge amount of change and discussion in the past 12 months is around the rise in uh, online behavioral advertising. Um, I hope everyone's got a sense of what I mean by that term. If you're a regular web user, I suspect you have because you're starting to see it in practice. What we're thinking about here is um, either the website you're on or a third party with that website's permission dropping cookies, little, essentially a, a little book um, placeholder onto your browser, which then recognizes where you've been when you go back in and allows the, either the website or the third party to drop adverts in um, based on where you've been. Now, at the moment, this practice is growing. It, uh, it allows advertisers to really get return on in their investment. They start to hit audiences who they're no interested. And whether or not that's the driver behind it, I'm not sure, but at the back end of the telecoms directive, uh, we, we had a little bit of a footnote change where that practice and the use of cookies, which up until now had been on a kind of tell the, uh, tell the customer that this was happening, let them opt out, is now changing to what we have here, tell the customer and let them opt in. You have to get customer consent. And this is quite a sea change. There is an exemption given. You don't need to get that consent if the cookie is strictly necessary uh, for the service that the person's asking. But that starts to create a construct that's not terribly flexible for some of the things that we're doing online. And that construct, I think, is um, then made more cloudy, if you like, by uh, the recital to the telecoms directive, which says that actually that consent can be expressed through the appropriate settings of a browser or another application. So do you or don't you need this consent? Is what you're doing necessary or not? And does a browser allow it or not? Welcome to the discussion. Um, when we think about what's strictly necessary, what kind of practices in using a website are likely to be okay with this? Well, I think sort of things like users being able to say, yes, remember who I am, remember how I like my page set up, that, that makes sense. 
gets a bit grayer when you think about the website provider thinking about analytics or testing, optimizing the site. Is that really necessary to offer the service? When you come to thinking about um, online behavioral advertising, I, I think you're probably getting to a place where it's not. So then you drop down into the discussion about consent. How are you going to get consent? Um, it won't surprise you that we sort of find ourselves in a, a very much a polarized discussion. On one side, you have uh, those who think that this is a positive thing, um, saying that browser settings should be the way forward. And on the other side, uh, led by the, the commissioners' groups at the Article 29 Working Party, the expression that actually what you need is very much full data protection opt-in consent, that you'll not be able to do that through browsers. And even if you are getting it through browsers, it should be done on a kind of time-by-time -time basis. Um, it's interesting, I think, that this discussion is not happening on a UK or UK, uh, sorry, UK or EU basis only. It's happening globally. And in the US, they're a step ahead of us. We've already seen uh, Microsoft saying that Internet Explorer 9 is going to have an option to drop ads. Um, we've seen this week uh, Google and uh, Firefox announcing that they, uh, they will also be having that functionality in their browsers shortly, apps that will let you do this. So I think perhaps industry is already moving towards providing answers. This law is coming in in the UK in May of this year. The consultation closed in December. We still don't know what's happening. Not helpful if you're in any of those industries or anyone who's using a website to reach out to customers. So where are we likely to be going? Well, the government's given some indication in the consultation. Uh, uh, for those who, who know anything about this, or maybe if you don't, the government's already in trouble on a European basis um, for not implementing the last e-privacy directive properly. So I think they're probably minded to try and do this one properly, which is where the start point comes from. We'll copy out the relevant wording of the article. Good. Um, but then they go on to say that, actually, Recital 66 is quite helpful. So maybe we'll stick some of that in. So we're starting to get a, a, a balanced middle ground. Um, they then go on in the strictly necessary point to say, can't really say what's strictly necessary or not. We'll leave that to be developed. So an element of future proofing. And then probably most interestingly, they say, uh, in fact, we think we'll leave this to the information, commission, uh, information commissioner to have a think about exactly what it means in practice. With a nice caveat at the end that we're very pro-self-regulation and we think industry can look after itself. So in all of this debate, where does it leave us? I think it leaves us looking into May with a likelihood of the law being stated to be what it is in its face, but with regulator guidance coming from the commissioner and industry self-regulation from the advertising industries primarily, supported by software industries through browser tools with OFT-type enforcement in the background. And, and that kind of construct of, uh, of self-regulation is hopefully going to provide an answer through what at the moment is really quite a cloudy issue. One of the many cloudy issues online, um, I'll pass on quickly to Chris, who uh, is going to address some data protection issues in another online environment. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Callum. Um, the last part of this session, we're going to be looking at um, some developments uh, in HR aspects of data protection and privacy. And specifically, I thought it would be interesting to look at the rise of social media in the uh, HR employment law context. 
Um, just how widespread an issue is this? Um, when I was putting this session together, I came across a few stats, which are all designed to, to scare you, obviously. Um, the first one um, was some research carried out by myjobgroup.co.uk, which uh, calculated that social networking costs uh, organisations £14 billion a year in lost working time. Um, apparently, in that survey, 55% of employees admitted using social media during working hours, um, to which my reaction was only 55%. Um, another CV CBI survey suggested employees spend um, 95 minutes a week on average surfing the net. 54% um, of organisations restrict access to the internet at work. 25% um, have put no limits on access. 32% of all organisations have dismissed employees for internet misuse. And 41% of recruiters have rejected candidates based on information they've they found online. That was some separate in, uh, research commissioned by Microsoft. So what does all this mean for um, employers? Well, there are lots of implications, um, but today I've sort of picked out three. There is potentially an issue that uh, organisations can be liable for what their employees say and do on social media. There is another issue that you may want to take action against employees for, for what they say and do on social media. And then there is this issue around use of online information, social media information for recruitment. So first, liability for what employees do. There's a long established principle that employers can be liable for discriminatory acts of their employees, acts done in the course of employment. Um, that concept, acts done in the course of employment, is given a pretty wide interpretation. It doesn't just mean acts that employees do as part of their employment duties, anything um, in the workplace generally, and even acts outside the workplace. The case I've mentioned, uh, Chief Constable Lincolnshire Police against Stubbs, involves um, an employee who was claiming sexual harassment. Um, and he was complaining about two acts, one of which occurred um, down the pub at some leaving drinks. And so even though it was outside working hours and outside the workplace, she was still able to bring her sexual harassment claim based on that act as well as the other act. Uh, I should mention that employers do have a defence um, to this vicarious liability claim if they can show that they have taken all reasonably practicable steps to prevent the harassment um, occurring. In practice, it's not that easy to rely on that defence. The, the threshold imposed by employment tribunals for relying on that defence is quite high. The other way in which employers can be liable for the actions of employees is um, in bullying type cases uh, under the Protection from Harassment Act. That act was brought into force in um, 1997, and it was really designed to deal with stalking type of cases. Um, but as is often the way in these cases, law of unintended consequences, um, it has been used in the employment law context um, quite a lot. Um, the, the case I've mentioned involved an individual who claimed he was bullied by his manager, um, and he brought a claim against his um, employer um, under the vicarious liability principle. The case went up to the House of Lords, uh, who said um, that the employer could, in principle, be liable for, for the claim under the Protection from Harassment Act. That's all very well, you're thinking, what's that got to do with social media? Um, well, I suppose the answer to that is it doesn't take a huge leap of the imagination to see a situation where um, an employee posts something on Facebook that is um, a discriminatory remark about a colleague, 
or bullies a colleague or something like that. Um, and particularly if it's done in working hours, you can foresee a situation where the employer could be liable for that. Um, what's the answer then? Well, one solution is simply to ban employees um, from accessing social, social media sites altogether. Um, that's something I think, in my experience, a lot of organisations shy away from, um, partly because it seems um, a little bit draconian, um, and also because a lot of organisations will encourage their employees to use social media for some purposes. So, um, for example, a lot of organisations will encourage employees to tweet about the business. The more commonplace solution is to have some kind of partial ban, um, so banning certain sites, um, but importantly to have guidelines in place on acceptable usage. It's, it's not too difficult to do, it's well worth, and it's well worth putting in place because it can give you quite a lot of protection. Um, and the sorts of things you're thinking about are guidelines saying that the individual won't um, disparage customers and suppliers and employees, um, they won't disclose confidential information about the organisation, um, they won't speak on behalf of the employer unless they're specifically authorised to do so. And you should also already have in place an equal opportunities policy. And having these policies in place will put you in a much stronger position to rely on the, the reasonable steps defence to avoid a vicarious liability claim. And I should say this is not just theoretical um, law I speak. I have dealt with quite a few cases already um, where employees have, have um, put inappropriate posts on, on Facebook or Twitter. So let's suppose you do want to take action against your employees because they've acted inappropriately or put something in, um, inappropriate on some form of social media. Um, what are the considerations? I suppose the two sort of headline points are um, proportionality um, and having clear guidelines in place. Um, the first case I've mentioned on the slide is a good example of the, the need for clear guidelines. It concerned a couple of employees um, who were accessing the internet at work. Um, their employer had some guidelines which said you can use the internet outside core working hours. When it found that they'd been accessing the net, it dismissed them uh, in fairly short order and they brought unfair dismissal claims and they succeeded in those claims. Um, and the employment tribunal said, um, actually, this guidance you can use outside core working hours isn't terribly clear. Um, and these two employees were saying we were only using it in sort of in downtime periods when we didn't have other work to be getting on with. Um, and the tribunal said that's not sufficiently clear. I think it was also influenced by the fact um, that these employees had worked for the company for 30 plus years and it was felt that the employer's response was disproportionate particularly as these weren't offensive sites, um, sites like Boots and EasyJet, nothing sort of worse than that. Um, so that really reinforces the need to have clear guidelines. What if there is damage to the employer's reputation? Um, Taylor against Summerfield involves an employee who uh, posted a video on YouTube. Um, that video showed um, the individual himself, our hero, um, having a uh, fight with a fellow employee uh, using carrier bags from the store. Uh, the store found out about this and decided that he should be dismissed because of that it was going to damage his reputation. Um, again, he brought an unfair dismissal claim and he was successful. 
Um, and essentially because it was felt the employer's reaction was disproportionate. Um, and it was influenced by the fact that um, this, this video on YouTube hadn't exactly gone viral. There had been a total of eight hits, three of which had been from the managers who were investigating, um, <laughs> investigating the incident and had been taken down from after three days. Uh, I suppose the other thing to think about if you're taking action against employees for, for what they're putting on social media is privacy type concerns. Are you dismissing them for something that actually is more legitimately to do with their private life um, rather than to do with their work life? Um, pay against the United Kingdom is an example of that outside um, the social media context, but I think the principles apply equally. Um, it concerned an individual who, in his spare time, was interested in sadomasochistic activities. Um, for his day job, he worked with sexual offenders for the, the prison service. And when the prison service found out about this, um, his, his hobby, they decided he should be dismissed. Um, and he argued about this, didn't react well to his punishment, um, and um, didn't take it lying down. Uh, and he took his case all the way to the European Court of Human Rights and said this was an infringement of his right to private life under Article 8 of the European Convention. Um, in this particular case, he lost, but it was found to be quite um, a finely balanced decision. He lost because of the job that he did, but you can well imagine that in a different circumstance, um, he probably would have been successful. Um, it's an issue that other jurisdictions are grappling with as well. Um, I've mentioned the National Labor Relations Board, um, which is a, a body in the US which has intervened in a case um, where an individual has been dismissed for comments he wrote about his, his boss on Facebook. And I think the case has actually just, just started this week, so it'll be interesting to see how that one turns out. But the NLRB is saying that's effectively an infringement of the individual's right to free speech. The last area I just wanted to touch on then um, is use of social media for recruitment, recruitment purposes. Um, I've already mentioned this figure that 41% of recruiters and employers have rejected candidates based on information they find online. Um, interestingly, the same survey found that 80% of them have concerns about the accuracy of the information they find online, but only 68% of them take steps to check it. Um, the sorts of reasons that were given for rejecting candidates based on online findings included inappropriate things written by the candidate, unsuitable videos, photos, um, concerns about the candidate's lifestyle, comments criticising previous employers. Why is this a concern? Um, well, I suppose twofold. Firstly, um, this engages sort of data protection issues fairly directly because viewing information online is going to constitute processing of personal data, and so the data protection principles are engaged, um, including the Information Commissioner's guidance on recruitment in particular. Um, it's pretty lengthy guidance, but the sort of, some of the main principles are on, on this slide. Um, it's things like applicants should know in the recruitment process what information has been collected about them. Um, collecting information covertly is unlikely to be justified. You shouldn't collect more information than you need. Um, and if you collect information that's irrelevant or it's disproportionate, you're probably going to be breaching the data protection rules. All that matters um, it, because potentially an individual can bring a claim if their data protection rights have been infringed. They can bring a damages claim under Section 13 uh, of the Data Protection Act. 
And again, it's not impossible to imagine a well-qualified can candidate who is rejected for a job um, saying, actually, it's because of this information you found out about me from, from Facebook or somewhere else. Um, and actually, that's only half the story, or that embarrassing photo was taken five years ago. That's my story anyway. Um, and um, actually, if you'd spoken to me about it and found the whole, the whole story, you would, have, you would have discovered that actually the reality is a bit different and I would have got the job. Um, so that, that's certainly one side of why you need to be careful. The other side of this is um, potential um, discrimination claims. We, we're back to discrimination again. Um, and it's worth mentioning that often in discrimination claims, the burden will be on the employer to disprove the claim rather than the burden being on the employee to prove it. Because if there are facts from which a tribunal can conclude that um, discrimination has occurred, then the employer has to disprove it. Um, the other thing to say is that discrimination covers a very wide range of characteristics now, which I've listed on the, on the screen, so I won't go through them all. But not only are those characteristics um, very wide, they are widely interpreted. Um, just to give one example of that, religion or belief, the last characteristic on the screen, um, has been interpreted, the, the belief aspect of that has been interpreted to include a belief in climate change. So there was a case um, a couple of years ago where an employee had a belief in climate change and it was a fundamental part of his life um, and he said that he was dismissed because of that belief and he was able to bring a discrimination claim. So you can see that discrimination is a, is a pretty wide-ranging thing now. Um, and again, you can well easily see a situation um, where um, a, an apparently well-qualified candidate for a job gets rejected um, and he says the only explanation for that is because you found out something about me on, um, on Facebook or, or some other social media about my religious beliefs or my sexual orientation or whatever else it might be. So what's the solution in terms of using social media for recruitment? Well, I would certainly say best practice is, is actually don't do it because the information is probably unreliable and you do open a can of worms. If you are going to do it, it's better to limit it to specific types of inquiry, uh, specific sites, maybe only do it for the people who are, who are shortlisted or who you are going to call into interview. Um, in accordance with the Information Commissioner's guidelines, um, it's a good idea to tell candidates in generic terms if you're going to do it so they'll be aware of it. Um, and lastly, give them an opportunity to respond to material findings. So this gets around the issue that actually you've misunderstood um, what you've found out online or you've only uh, got a partial picture. Uh, 